Hi, everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and joining me as co-host is Sahil Farishta. Our guest today is Alec Gallimore, who is the Robert J. Vlasic Dean of Engineering at the University of Michigan. In today's conversation with Alec, we discuss his research in electric propulsion, his journey to becoming the Dean of Engineering, and his advice for students at Michigan and beyond. Welcome to SEDScast, episode 28, with Alec Gallimore. Joining me today as co-host is Sahil Farishta, and our guest today is Dean of Michigan Engineering, Alec Gallimore. Alec, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. How are you two doing? I'm doing pretty well. Sahil, you're hanging in there? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. You know, everything's been good. Well, yeah, COVID's been a little weird. So Sahil is calling in from the Denver area where he lives right now. And then the rest of us are also calling in from our homes in Ann Arbor. So it's obviously a little weird, but we're really glad to have Dean Gallimore on here today to talk with us. So, Alec, if you could start off by just giving us some background on who you are, what you do right now, and I guess also how you first got interested in space. Sure. So, uh, as you noted, I'm the dean of uh, Michigan Engineering, the College of Engineering. I've been a dean for five years, and I've been on the faculty for uh, 28 years in aerospace engineering, and then I also have a joint appointment in plasma physics. And I taught uh, aircraft design uh, for propulsion systems, spacecraft design courses, rocket propulsion systems, uh, jet propulsion systems, you name it. Uh, And um, I got interested in space because I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a little kid. I uh, saw a lot of science fiction shows and read a lot of science fiction books. And in fact, the movie that really did it for me was 2001 Space Odyssey. Uh, I just, believe it or not, as a little kid, I fell in love with the Discovery One spacecraft. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And the whole idea of these spaceships going at over 100,000 miles an hour really just amazed me. So make a long story short, I decided from an early age, really grade school, that I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be one of the first people to set foot on Mars. But I wanted to get there on a spaceship that I helped design, specifically a plasma-based propulsion system. And so if you think about the kind of research I do now, which is plasma-based propulsion systems that may one day uh, send people to Mars, uh, you kind of get a sense there's a connection between that uh, eight-year-old little boy and uh, a bit older, middle-aged dean of engineering. (laughs) That's amazing that you were so... uh focused from an early age. A lot of people will come on and say they want to be astronauts, but they won't say they want to help build it and they won't know exactly what part they want to work on. So that's right. That's really cool. Did that affect your undergraduate college decision? Did you go into undergrad knowing you wanted to do something with like space plasma physics or was that more of as you got towards your PhD level? Oh, uh, from undergrad, actually, even from high school, as a matter of fact. So I, I did research in chem labs when I was a high school student and things like that. So I knew I wanted to do research. So I went to uh, Rensselaer Polytech undergrad, uh, truly engineering focused uh, college. Uh, I, I kind of almost went to the nerdiest engineering school I could imagine uh, when I was in high school and um, studied aeronautical engineering. And I did research from my very first semester uh, there. I worked on what was called the Apollo Lightcraft, which is the idea that you could take um, a laser that's off board, it's not on the space, on the craft itself, 
And by focusing the laser, you can actually heat up the air around the craft in such a way that the hot air propels the craft upwards. And so I did a lot of research on that, mostly analytical work and so on and so forth associated with that. It wasn't until I left RPI that people had actually started doing experiments, but that was some work I did. I actually did work on composites. I learned uh, composite materials. Uh, I took a lot of courses. I think I graduated with 150 credits or so in my four years. I took a lot of graduate courses when I was there on CF computational fluid dynamics and um, structures. I just uh, really loved uh, engineering, doing engineering work and so on. I worked on a lot of projects. And so I left RPI knowing I was going to get a PhD because honestly, when I graduated, I didn't think I knew anything. (laughs) And so I said, I I really need to continue my education because I don't know anything. (laughs) Honestly, you know, after, um, you know, after graduating with my undergrad, I can actually relate with that because, you know, I graduated and they're like, here's your aerospace degree. But then I'm like, I don't think I could like, you know, make a spacecraft at this point. I I don't know anything. (laughs) So (laughs) I can definitely relate with that at this point. So it's good to know it's not just me. (laughs) Not just you. Yeah. And Sahil and I are doing one extra year instead of five. So I don't know if this is going to work out for us, but we'll go ahead and try it. So what drew you to Princeton then? We actually had, I think, Will Coogan, who's at Firefly, also came out of the same program as you, but about 20 years later. Yeah. He explained why he went to Princeton. Can you give us some thoughts as to like why you wanted to go there? Yeah, well, it, it helps to explain, you know, first, you know, like I did before, why I went to RPI, because it was, it's, it was viewed as, and it still is, but especially back then, I think is a very, very rigorous very intense uh, technological university. And that's what really appealed to me coming out of high school um, a lot. Um, Having graduated from RPI, I actually decided that it was important for me to broaden my educational experience, as a matter of fact. So yes, I had an opportunity to go to the usual suspects you might imagine um, for graduate school, um, you know, including MIT and Caltech and Stanford. I got admitted to those schools. And the reason I turned them down in part was because Princeton had at the time the best plasma physics program, arguably in the world. And I knew I needed to be a plasma physicist to be able to pursue my interest in advanced spacecraft propulsion. They also had the best electric propulsion laboratory uh, in the world at that point, at least in an academic setting at that point, uh, there was that. So those two alone, you might say, well, it's obvious you go to Princeton, but actually I really wanted to have a more diverse educational experience. So I wanted to spend time with philosophers and humanists and psychologists. Um, I wanted to really broaden my horizon by going to a university that was much broader and much more of a liberal arts university than certainly RPI or MIT or Caltech or something like that. And uh, I found it uh, really awesome, actually. It was um, to meet really smart, erudite people from a lot of different backgrounds who can not only explain to you sort of their points of view, but actually help you understand why you have your own framework for thinking uh, was was great. So I, 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 I love being at RPI for that time of my life. And I love being at Princeton for that time of my life. So while you were at Princeton, like, um, I imagine, you know, you kept working apart from your research, you know, for your PhD thesis itself. Um, what other projects did you get an opportunity to work on uh, during your five years there? Well, I had really kind of an amazingly great deal. 
So I received a uh, fellowship from Princeton for my first couple of years, but then the remaining three were actually supported by NASA. And part of the graduate fellowship I received from NASA was to spend about a year at a NASA facility. So I spent a year at what was then called the NASA Lewis Research Center. It's now called the Glenn Research Center uh, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And it was amazing. I literally had a a 50 kilowatt class plasma thruster that I designed and built and I had my own technician and we ran experiments for the course of a year as part of my uh, dissertation. So I spent four years at Princeton and one year at NASA working on my PhD dissertation on both. At Princeton, there were these pulse devices. They would be flashes a fraction of a second. I did my work with these high-speed electronics to understand those plasma devices. But at NASA, which has facilities that Princeton never could even have imagined having, I was able to convert it to a steady-state type of device and run it. And uh, again, the, the, the amount of um, education I had learning about very large vacuum chambers, how to run very high power steady state devices and so on and so forth was a perfect prelude for me to go to the University of Michigan and start up the Plasma Dynamics Electric Repulsion Lab. So yeah, let's talk about that. What drew you to Michigan and was there a plasma lab or anything to do with electric propulsion when you arrived? No, there wasn't any uh, lab per se. There was the vacuum chamber though. The vacuum chamber was built for this company called Bendix Aerospace Corporation in the early 60s to support the Apollo program. So actually there's some payloads that are on the moon that were actually developed and tested uh, in that chamber in Ann Arbor. Um, They did some old shuttle work in the sense of testing some spacesuits and things like that. There was a prototype lunar rover that was tested. So it was really built in support of the Apollo program uh, throughout the 60s. What happened is that around 1980 or so, Bendix decided to, to leave um, Ann Arbor and donated the facility to the University of Michigan. For the better part of the 80s, the university took part of that facility, turned it into a printing press and other auxiliary s- services. Um, but they had this very large vacuum chamber, 20 by 30 feet, and just I'm sure your audience understands the vacuum chamber, but the type of devices I'm talking about operate only in space. They don't operate in the air. You need chemical rockets to get it up there. And I'll later on, I suspect, describe the difference between chemical and electric rockets. So you need a vacuum chamber to simulate the low pressures of space to to develop these engines. Um, And so this vacuum chamber um, sat there for a while. The university was trying to decide what to do with it. And then um, this um, enterprising department chair of aerospace engineering, Dr. Uh, Thomas Adamson, said, I bet you that could be used for advanced spacecraft propulsion if only we could find the right person. So meanwhile, back in New Jersey, I'm finishing up my uh, PhD and I'm thinking of applying to the astronaut corps. And I had spent a lot of time doing research about becoming an astronaut. I met a lot of astronauts. I used to work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory during my summers at, at RPI and stuff. I met a lot of astronauts. And make a long story short, short in order to be a, an astronaut candidate at the time, they recommended or maybe even mandated you had to have a few years of work experience post-PhD. So I asked myself the following question. I said, well, I got to work for like three years for before I can become an astronaut. So where can I go and not have a boss? That was the first 
criterion, not have a direct boss. And then second, I was terrified of public speaking. I was very, very shy. And so I said, I need to go somewhere. It's going to force me to have to speak in front of people all the time. And then third, I wanted to do something that I thought would be exciting, even for three years. I think, what could I do uh, that would be kind of fun and exciting before I moved to Houston or whatever? As you can see, I was determined to become an astronaut. So it wasn't if, it was when from that mindset at that time. And you put all those things together, you think, hmm, university professor doesn't sound so bad. And so what happened is about the same time I was re reaching the conclusion I wanted to be a university professor, through a myriad of happenstance, they found out about me. There, it turns out there was a Michigan alum who was in my lab and who was graduating and, and approached him. And that person said, I'm going to NASA, but you should talk to my buddy, Alec. And that's sort of, I interviewed and that's how it happened. And I started uh, as a professor and that Bendix vacuum chamber uh, became my lab and I converted to what's now known as a plasma dynamics and electric propulsion laboratory in the early 1990s. Wow. That's quite the story. And I had never heard that before. So that's interesting to know. So you just mentioned the name of the lab, which is shortened to PEPL mm -hmm. and it's become quite a prominent lab. Can we talk before we get into that? Can you explain for our listeners the difference between chemical and electric propulsion and why you care so much about this subject? Right. So the first thing to start with is um, thinking a little bit about space travel and how it works. And really, let's focus on interplanetary travel, uh, That just to, to frame the discussion. So really, what you're talking about interplanetary travel is you're trying to get on various orbits around the sun, various conveyor belts. Um, in many cases, what we do is we have to do a balance between the kinetic energy we put on the spacecraft and the potential energy that is being um, derived by the gravitational force of the sun primarily. Initially the earth, but once you get a certain distance, the sun dominates. And you really, in some respects, the propulsion system puts the spacecraft in the right orbit around the sun. And you talk about launch windows because you want to get to Mars when Mars is actually there. So you want to make sure that everything lines up. Otherwise, it's a long way around the sun to come back. So with all that sun, all that said, you can have something called a rocket equation, which sort of is a way of saying how much of your mass of your spacecraft needs to be fuel and oxidizer or propellant versus the payload. But then also there's a figure of merit called the specific impulse or the speed at which the gas leaves the propulsion system. The faster the propellant leaves the propulsion system, the ultimately the faster you can get the spacecraft going or for the same speed, you can use a lot less propellant. So you can think of specific impulse or the exhaust velocity as a figure of merit akin to miles per gallon or something, some efficiency. Okay, having said that. So chemical propulsion, great stuff. We need it to get things um, from the ground into space because you need a thrust to weight ratio greater than one. It essentially consumes its own power supply, which is the fuel and the oxidizer. But Mother Nature says, I will give you 10 megajoules, 10 million joules of energy per kilogram of propellant, nothing more, more or less. And when you do the math, that converts to an exhaust velocity of around five kilometers a second or an, an ISP, specific impulse, up to 500 seconds. Um, we, we can do about 480 with the most advanced chemical propulsion systems. And you can do a lot with 480. 
But if you wanted, for example, to have an ex- a, a change in velocity of the spacecraft of, say, 100, 200,000 miles an hour to go somewhere very quickly, you can never do it with an exhaust velocity of only uh, four or 5,000 meters per second, because for every kilogram of payload you would need to deliver, you would need 100,000 kilograms of propellant. Okay, So the only way to get the mass of the payload to be reasonable compared to all the propellant you need is by having the exhaust velocity much higher. So instead of being at 4,000 meters per second, what if it were 40,000 meters per second or 50,000 or 100,000 meters per second? So if Mother Nature says I'm limiting to, to, to about four or five kilometers a second, we have to find other ways of energizing the propellant. So what electric propulsion does, is it takes the power available to on the spacecraft, solar arrays and eventually nuclear reactors, and we put in hundreds, thousands of megajoules of energy per propellant, per kilogram of propellant. We typically heat it up to hundreds of thousands or millions of degrees. It forms a plasma, which is positively charged ions, negatively charged electrons. And then because they have charge, we can use electromagnetic fields to funnel and shoot it out the back at tremendous velocities. And so that's what we do. We take xenon as a propellant. We put in a huge amount of power in the xenon, turns it into a plasma. We create electric fields and magnetic fields, and we shoot out the back at velocities an order of magnitude greater than you could get with any chemical system. And what that allows us to do for commercial satellites to use a lot less propellant. So you can actually put two spacecraft on one launch vehicle. That's why we have hundreds of those in orbit as we speak using communication satellites. But for things like deep space missions or even uh, piloted or crewed missions to Mars, it reduces the mass of the spacecraft, the amount of propellant you need to put in space. And it can also shorten the trip time by accelerating the spacecraft to greater velocities. So that's why there's a lot of interest from industry, from the Department of Defense, and of course, from NASA and this kind of technology. That was a very solid explanation. Thank you. That was the perfect length to like help people understand what's going on without going into a great level of detail. So that's awesome. So now that you've kind of given some framework on what electric propulsion is, can we talk about what your lab is doing and why you're working on the projects you work on? Sure, sure. So the... Um, the history of the lab is very interesting in the sense that in the first decade of the lab, we focused on taking, um, believe it or not, Russian, formerly Soviet, haul thruster technology and understanding the uh, exhaust, which we call the plume, because it had, it turns out that the uh, Soviet Union had actually advanced the haul thruster technology, which is a specific type of electric propulsion that our lab is now well known for more so than the Americans. So a lot of the Americans, uh, both for commercial and believe it or not, Department of Defense applications were very interested in taking these haul thrusters and applying it to their spacecraft for maneuvering in space. But they didn't, it was so different from the other propulsion systems that were being worked on. There was concern that the exhaust, the energetic plasma coming from these devices could literally damage the surfaces of the spacecraft, namely the solar arrays, or that it would actually mess up the radio waves. The plat- the radio waves would be essentially, um, the signal would be um, reduced uh, in intensity because of the plasma. So for the first decade, what we did, we worked with just about any type of Russian thruster that people were interested in working on 
uh, having uh, on their spacecraft. And we did a lot of work with machines, with robots to probe the plasma, lasers, microwave systems, you name it. And then in the second decade of the lab, we decided that we wanted to understand the physics of these devices better. So we developed our own prototype of these thrusters, mostly with Air Force funding. And again, we applied a lot of research, but not just to understand what's going on outside of these thrusters, but actually what's going on inside. So we developed very fast, high-speed robotic systems to move probes in and out. And we helped perfect the, the ability to use lasers to actually diagnose what's going on inside these intense plasmas inside it. And that gave us a lot of insight. NASA then decided that they wanted to use Hall thrusters for planetary missions and needed to improve the performance. So we partnered with NASA and developed a whole series of thrusters that would be appropriate, not just for Earth orbit applications, but for deep space applications. And in fact, the thruster that will be operating on the uh, Gateway Space Station later in this decade with uh, astronauts on board, you can actually have a direct line from the design of that thruster to the thrusters that we helped with work with NASA designing. The, the, the heritage is direct. And in fact, a lot of our Pepple alums are indeed working on the design of those thrusters. So now you fast forward to what are we doing right now? We're still in the thruster development business, but uh, one of the uh, marquee thrusters that we worked on is called the X3. Um, it's the world's most powerful Hall thruster. If you take your standard Hall thrusters fl flown on space for, for these satellites, the size of a dinner plate and they consume around four, four and a half kilowatts of power. The X3, on the other hand, is the size of a car table, if you will, a round car table, that is and it consumes over 100 kilowatts of power. And in fact, it's literally the world's first prototype Hall thruster that has the power that could be used for something like a crewed mission to Mars. That That's a lot of incredible stuff. Um, I imagine, you know, whenever you're working with NASA, uh, they're able to compensate the, the, the lab for all of the work that you're doing. But apart from that, and in I guess in just in general, like how do you guys uh, fund the facilities and the research that's uh, being done at Pebble? Yeah, that's, that, those are great questions. And, and there's a lot of um, misinformation about that, even from our sponsors and research. So I once had a, a, a person from NASA who was funding us come to the lab. And the lab, uh, I, if you can, uh, come to a tour when it's available, it's a very impressive lab, I have just to say. I know I'm slightly biased, but it is a very uh, amazing lab. And when they come and they see all this infrastructure and we have multiple chambers and all this, all this stuff going on, they say, wow, who funds all this? And I say, I point the finger at them, I say, you do, <laughs> I said. So the bottom, answer, bottom line answer to your, 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 your question is relatively small amounts of the uh, funding that's used to support the lab actually comes from the University of Michigan. We, we are like a small business. We go out and we fundraise uh, through grants. So we get grants from the Air Force. We get uh, multiple grants from the Air Force, multiple grants from NASA. We'll get grants or contracts from industry to develop technology, to test, et cetera. And, you know, a lab like that will, will require over a million dollars a year of support uh, to uh, pay for the research. So, for example, all of our PhD students, who are really the people who do the research, they are paid. They have their tuitions paid, they have stipends paid, and so on. And all of our 
Pepple students are paid either through our grants or they have fellowships from the federal government, NASA and NSF, et cetera. And you put all those things together, it's like $2 million a year just to uh, support the lab that we have to raise. That is a lot of responsibility. And I guess this segues nicely into talking about Michigan engineering as a whole, because you've gone from, you know, being brought in to do a very specific task and do some research for the university to now leading the College of Engineering. So where do your responsibilities lie now in the research versus the administration is in terms of both your time and also are you bringing in, I know Professor Jorns is also involved with PEPL and there's some other professors as well. Are you still able to monitor and run the lab or is that now been pushed onto them? It's it's truly been pushed onto them and rightfully so for a variety of reasons. Um, I do stay involved um, in the sense that all of the PEPL students typically have me on their PhD uh, dissertation committees. For a dissertation committee, you typically have four members, including the advisor. So I will either be a co-advisor or be one of the other members of the dissertation committees. And so that way I'm allowed to um, advise, but also get a sense of what's going on in the lab. Believe it or not, I'm still on uh, one or two proposals and, and I almost view myself as an advisor to the lab uh, because I'm still engaged in work with, for example, the National Academy of Engineering, um, other entities outside helping NASA with the planning for returning to the moon and going to Mars. And so I sort of bring that insight back to uh, the University of Michigan in, in terms of helping guide the research that we do at Pepl specifically. Um, so I'd say still a, a fraction of my time is, is meeting with students and um, certainly meeting with Professor Jorns and uh, Professor Foster and the other faculty members who are engaged in the lab. But the vast, vast, vast majority of my time, as you might imagine, is, is um, serving as the Robert J. Vlasic Dean of Engineering at Michigan. So let's talk about that, because I think both Sahil and I agreed we don't understand how the either it's politics or there's an actual process, who's to say. But like when you're coming as a professor, how do you start to take leadership roles and how is that selection made so that you become, you know, vice dean or whatever it is, and then eventually move up the ranks? That is a question um, that everyone asks, including professors. <laughs> so uh, don't feel bad, <laughs> you don't know. And that may tell you that there's no systemic way or systematic way of doing it. It's just a little bit of uh, happenstance, how it happens. Uh, I, can, I can tell you my story very briefly, and then more or less, that's often how it happens. But it's a matter of being someone who's seen as dependable, um, works well with other people, and in the in the realm of what we call service. So for your typical canonical faculty member at a place like the University of Michigan, there are three legs to the academic stool of a faculty member. There's obviously the teaching one, and there's obviously the research one. The third one, which is less obvious to people, is what we call service. And that has myriad ways of manifesting itself. It could be, for example, serving in, uh, as advisors to companies, uh, to foundations, to professional societies, to the federal government. Uh, that's one version of that. It could be um, serving on the editorial board of a, of, a, of a journal. It could be running conferences, a variety of different things. Uh, outreach is another aspect of it. 
But the version of service that's most commonly done by the faculty members are um, internal service. That is serving on committees that help make the departments, the college, the universities run. So curriculum committee, how do you decide whether or not these changes in the courses make sense for the students and, and so on and so forth? A lot of different committees. Departments have their own committees. The university has committees. The college has committees. So often when, when you ask leaders, how did you go from being a rank and file faculty member through um, um, promotions to becoming a, a dean or associate dean or a chair, it's obviously through service where that happens. So you serve on these committees. Um, you, you, you do the best job you can. You're seen to be, again, dependable, et cetera. And often what happens is people who find themselves in these leadership roles ask the questions like, why do we do it that way? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why don't we do it this way? And people will go, oh, you know, that's a pretty good idea. And I say, well, I'll tell you what, let me work on it. Let me see what I can do about that. And then that happens over and over again. And then you get sort of a reputation of you know, being dependable, being asking those inquisitive questions. But uh, really as important as anything else, ability to work on a team and frankly lead, if you will. And it doesn't mean that you are given the chair position of the committee or the official leadership role, but there are ways in which you can exert leadership without being the leader, if that makes any sense to you. And over time, you find yourself being asked to do more and more, not only service in the sense of number of committees, but more higher profile type of things. You go from the department, maybe to college type of uh, committee. And then at the university level, you get to meet more people, you get more exposure, you enjoy it more. And then all those things kind of lead to a path where when it's time to select leaders, um, there's sort of a natural list. I'm not saying it's a perfect list because there is always, you always worry about bias and things like that and coming over these lists. And I, we have to fight that and make sure that it is a comprehensive list. But Nevertheless, um, most of the people who are on the list are people who have demonstrated an interest and ability to lead, if you will, by virtue of these service uh, roles they've played. Yeah, that's that's good to know. I definitely had no idea how this works, you know, um, <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, I guess a question that I have that, you know, um, I was remembering, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, your idea after your PhD was, OK, let me go. Let me go get a job. Let me try to do something that's really, really exciting. And then let's go, let's go figure it uh, Let's go work on becoming an astronaut. Um, but now, you know, fast forward to today, you know, you're suddenly, instead of not, not having a boss, you're the big boss of the College of Engineering. Uh, <laughs> you know, you led Pepple and all of that. So mm -hmm. I guess, how did you, first off, you know, shift from that initial goal of, okay, three years, astronaut, let's see what happens, to now, you know, being, like, deciding okay, let's become the dean of the College of Engineering um, at the university. Yeah, it's, it's, it was actually um, kind of gradual until just before becoming the dean, I would say. And it was gradual in the sense that for about half of my career, I just went through the, the usual path that a faculty member would have. Start off as an assistant professor, got tenure, became a full professor, did research, um, started a company, um, did a lot of service, taught, loved to teach. Um, I'm really pleased to have become a Theranel professor, for example. I mean, I really, that, um, which is a professorship that uh, recognizes um, 
teachers dedicated to um, undergraduate education. So that that to me was something I was really pleased to have been recognized. And then I had an opportunity uh, about a year after becoming a full professor to serve as the associate dean um, at the Rackham School of Graduate Studies. There was a new dean there. She reached out to me. Uh, we made a, a connection. We saw eye to eye. It was great. And I did that for six years. And then it was just wonderful. Those years at Rackham were great. We did a lot of amazing work together. And that showed me how much impact one can have as a um, leader on campus and as an administrator in particular. That, yeah, you, you clearly Pepple has had and continues to have impact. And I've had been very fortunate to have a huge amount of impact by virtue of all the students I've taught and worked with and graduated, if you will. But this is a different way of providing impact. And I thought it was very exciting. I also found that the administrative puzzles that you try to unravel are as intellectually challenging, frankly, as anything I ran into in the lab, to be frank. And I think a lot of people don't understand that because um, they're complicated because they involve human beings and human behavior and all those type of things. And so for a number of years, I, I did that at the Rackham School of Graduate Studies. Then I moved to the College of Engineering and had administrative roles there. And then I was essentially the chief operating officer, if you will, the equivalent um, before becoming the dean. And by that point, it was pretty clear that administration was what I wanted to devote my career to. And um, I think others saw me as sort of a natural person to, if not be the dean, to be certainly an administrator um, It's continuing in my career. So that's pretty great, you know, to see that general, um, you know, just progression of, okay, you know, this is the next exciting opportunity. And then before you know it, you know, you're sitting at the top uh, controlling everything, which is, which is super cool. Cause I feel like, you know, if we have people that are super dedicated about um, what they do sitting at the top, then a lot of things get done and, you know, everybody benefits. So I guess what have been your goals for Michigan engineering, um, Michigan in general, you know, uh, Pepple, um, et cetera, and how have they changed over time? So a lot of how I think about my role as dean and how I think about the College of Engineering were shaped mostly through my experience at Pepple and then to a lesser extent at, at the Rackham School of Graduate Studies. Um, let me start with the latter. Um, the thing about Rackham, which um, really helped inform me as dean, is I was one of four associate deans and the other three were in different areas. One was in the humanities, one was in the social sciences, and one was in the biological sciences. And then I was in the engineering and, and, the, and the natural sciences. So the interchange and learning about how a humanist thinks about the world versus a social scientist versus an engineer. Again, going back to our earlier discussion about why I went to Princeton, in some respects, why I went to Rackham was very much about the continuing broadening of my education, if you will. And I always try to pick opportunities with two criteria in mind. One, it makes a difference. And two, I learn. I'm constantly in a position of learning. I think it's important, this life learning aspect of things. And I learned a lot at Rackham. So that was very helpful. And the thing I learned at Rackham is that there's a lot of differences at the, a place like the University of Michigan, 
And that's what makes the University of Michigan special. And therefore, the College of Engineering needs to benefit from that difference, that diversity of thought. That's our secret. That's the recipe in our secret sauce is the diversity aspect, intellectual diversity of the University of Michigan. And then what did I learn from Peppel? I learned from Peppel that as a leader, you get the very best work out of an organization by getting the very best people you can and encouraging them and building them up as much as possible and um, inspiring them to do their very best work. So the notion of inspiration is what I learned from Peppel. The, the amazing things that our students did and our postdoc did um, was because they had pride in the organization. We call it Peppel pride. And then they were inspired, inspired by the work, inspired by their colleagues, maybe slightly inspired by yours truly. But the point is that they wanted to do great things because they believe in the organization. And that is what I see about Michigan engineering, what makes Michigan engineering great. We have a great community, a great culture. Uh, we have a great mission. And so all, really what I'm trying to do is in the mantra that we created when I started as dean back in 2016 was great to best. We have a great engineering college. It's really one of the best. And the great to best isn't saying we want to become the number one, we're number four, and we want to become number one in some magazine rankings. That's not what we're talking about. When we say great to best, we're saying, are we doing the best job we can in utilizing all of our resources that we have here, the, the people that we have, um, the diversity of people? Are we doing the best to utilize the University of Michigan and all the richness that comes from being a truly one of the world's elite universities in terms of breadth and depth of intellectual pursuits. And so that's what I want. What I want is I want to create a, a, an organization in Michigan engineering where people are inspired to do their very, very best work, where they have the resources, they have the permission, they have the support they need to do those type of things be it a learner, be it our staff or faculty, be it our alums who want to find a ways of contributing and giving back in a number of ways. That in a nutshell, I mean, I can go into specific details about our Michigan engineering strategic plan and how we're going about doing it. But that in a nutshell is what we're trying to do. That's pretty good. The, the, the great to best notion. I like that a lot. I guess, you know, this past year has been very heavy on pretty much anybody um, in the country, you know, dealing with a global pandemic um, and all of the, you know, racial injustices that our community has faced. And, you know, I remember, um, I believe it was in June that I received, you know, a, an email, you know, all of the students received an email from you, right? It was a really long but strong email. And I remember that stuck with me. So I guess how have these goals changed, you know, based on the events that we've seen very, very recently. Right. So if anything, um, it's really reinforced the fact that we were on the right path and that if anything, we need to redouble our efforts and maybe accelerate our effort in terms of going from great to best. And so right from really the beginning of my becoming dean, we had a retreat or even a series of retreats, you can say, but one major retreat. And we came up with a vision statement, uh, the world's preeminent college of engineering and service to the common good. 
um, our mission statement, et cetera, and our values. And we thought we needed to start with those values, mission statement, and, and even the tagline, great to best. And nothing that's happened over the past several months or last year has actually changed that whatsoever. When you think about, for example, our Michigan Engineering 2020 strategic plan or strategic vision, we have three pillars. We have education, which is pretty obvious, research, which is pretty obvious, but we have culture. And I have to tell you, we we thought long and hard about whether or not to make culture a horizontal element that permeates across everything we do or to make it a pillar where we focus on it. And the answer is we decided to do both, that we wanted to focus on it as one of the three pillars so that it would lay the foundation and permeate through everything we do. And the notion of diversity, equity, and social um, impact is one that comes to mind as being critically important. So to answer your question further, um, as you may recall, the message I sent out was one of sharing my own perspectives, my own points of view uh, as a person of color um, here in the United States in the year 2020. And really to suggest that Racism, bias, all the isms that we have are really complex. It goes to the thing I said earlier about these um, administrative puzzles are just as intellectually challenging as anything I've seen in the lab. Well, these um, challenges that we face as society are clearly some of our most daunting and intellectually challenging uh, because if they weren't, we would have addressed them by now, clearly, right? So very, very challenging. And what I said in the message is like any other challenging and difficult thing you're trying to study or learn about, there are resources that you need to delve into. You need their books, their movies, there are podcasts, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Like this very podcast is a good example, right? And I encourage the, the community uh, to learn, but that's not enough. So what we're doing to follow up is we establish a number of community teams that are asking ourselves, how do we do a better job educating our community and helping to develop our community to be better at really making sure that all members of our community, depending on doesn't, regardless of their background, uh, can thrive and achieve to their fullest potential. And so we have, for example, and this came out in the university record article just last week, a framework of professional development and education for our students, our faculty and our staff, and also a greater emphasis and availability of bystander intervention training so that we can work on not only while we educate people about how to navigate through these isms, if you will, how do we take action to improve the climate for all when we're seeing actions or hearing things or seeing things that are not aligned with our vision and so on. It's a very aggressive uh, stance we've taken. Um, it's, it's one that not every member of our community is ever gonna agree with. It's one that's never gonna be perfect or it's not gonna be fraught with um, perhaps even challenges and controversies, but those are not good enough reasons not to try and to do something. The time is right, the time is now. So we're being very aggressive and we're being unapologetic about how aggressive we are being because we need to be as leaders and best. That's very well put. I like the unapologetically aggressive statement. 
let's talk a little bit about on a broader scope because you're someone that has seen everything from first year undergraduate students to fifth year PhDs. You've seen everything in between. Can you give some advice to students who are just generally interested in space, want to learn about space while they're in college and then get into the space industry and make the future of space happen? What advice do you have for those students as far as skills they should be working on while they're students and also just what they should be doing as people to make sure that the future of space is better and brighter? That's great. Yeah. So first of all, um, it, for people who are at places like the University of Michigan, um, you're you jackpot. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, I think the, of course, doing, you know, working hard in the classes goes without saying and so on and so forth. Um, taking care of yourself and making sure that there's balance is critically important. And I can't stress that enough. Um, but to add to that, the student orgs and the competition teams are just amazing things to get involved with. I mean, really, that's that's a must in my mind, because so much of the learning that happens at a place like the University of Michigan is not what happens in the classrooms. It's actually what happens in these student organizations uh, and these competition teams. So getting involved is great. I'm a big fan of conducting research while you're on campus and projects um, in general. I think uh, practicing engineering while you're a student makes you a, a greater um, engineer, a better engineer, wiser engineer. Uh, I think it's also critically important that you think about how to do internships and co-ops and things like that. And think about uh, multiple places and also know that sometimes knowing what you don't want to do because you've tried it is just as important than finding that one thing you want to do. Because often you have to go through a number of if you will, what seems to be missteps, but actually what it is, it's actually guidance as to the right path you should be taken. So I think exploring things, experimenting, trying different things, being uh, a little bit brave is important. And then another thing I, I can't stress uh, too much is um, really, and I said this in my message in June, taking risks, meeting people from different backgrounds, um, approaching your professors, approaching your GSIs, and not just when there's a problem, but actually trying to get to know these people and establish um, good relationships with these people is critically important because perhaps the best resource we have at a place like the University of Michigan is the incredibly talented people we have here. We're very fortunate. And I will tell you this, and I've said this to students my entire career, you will not appreciate that until after you have left the University of Michigan, you realize, wow, I never realized we had it so good. Excellent. Well, thank you, Alec, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to talk to you both as our dean, but also as a person and as someone that's contributed greatly to the space industry. So I want to thank you for joining us today and hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Take care.